Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on the rundown. Okay, welcome everyone to episode 17 of the Rust Belt Rundown. I'm your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Emily Lungard, Senior Director of State and Local Policy at Enterprise Community Partners. Uh, Emily, last episode, we had a Miami University graduate on, so it's only right we balance out the force with the Bobcats. Emily, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Paul. Yes, it's good to be representing the Bobcats. Yeah, you know, Chris Barry was who we had on last. Great guy. You can't fault him for where he chose to uh, pay his tuition, but it's always good to talk to a Bobcat. Um, All right, so bright and early today is Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. Appreciate you coming on early. Uh, We always like to give our guests an opportunity to just introduce themselves as if everyone listening um, doesn't know who you are and your background. So tell us a little bit more about uh, who Emily Lungard is. Yeah, Uh, well, again, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I am Ohio born and raised, really proud about that. Um, Not originally from Cleveland, actually, grew up in the Dayton area. Been in Cleveland for about 10 years. Uh, It's funny, you know, when I first came up here, everybody asked me where I went to high school, assuming I was from the Cleveland area. Um, What I told them I was from Dayton, I was usually met with a lot of funny looks, like, how did you end up here? But um, it's not not that far of of a trip. Yeah, but you know, even 10 years ago, it was, it, it was meaningful when people moved to Cleveland, right? It still is today, and it was then. I, I do love it here. I absolutely love it here. And, and honestly, I love Ohio. Um, I have sort of bopped around the state, grew up in Dayton, went to school at OU, as we talked about, spent some years down in Columbus, working around the state house, politics down there, until I eventually made it up here to Cleveland. So, um, yeah, I've always... Um, been engaged in public service. I knew from a really early age that that was my passion. That's where I was going to end up. I, I always blame it on sort of like a very early formed feminism. I had like a very early righteousness from a young age. There's it. photos of me. You can find um, sort of um, cheering on my mom. She used to be a runner. My mom was a runner and, and I'd be on the sidelines and I'd have posters like, I am woman, hear me roar, right? The poster was bigger than I, but but I'd always sort of had that in me. And I knew I needed to channel that righteousness somewhere and, uh, and public service was it. So, so that's what I've been spending my whole career on in different iterations. Uh, you found me on my Twitter page, Paul. So you'll see me there talking about politics and policy. Um, but you know, other, other than that, I'll, I'll say, you know, while I was raised in Dayton, I, I was raised right. I was raised a Cleveland sports fan. So I'm a pretty diehard Browns fan. I, I have a tailgate in the Muni actually that I, I do with my husband and another couple. Wow. We've been doing that for years. Yeah, we're pretty diehard. Um, so it's an exciting time. The draft? Yeah, yeah. We went downtown last night to check it out. It's, it's pretty amazing. We weren't able to sn- snag tickets, but um, yeah, we'll be watching. It's exciting stuff. Nice. Um, yeah, so if you, if you catch me on Twitter, you'll see me talking about the Browns. Um, probably standing for Cleveland too. I do a lot of that. Um, yeah, so I, I don't love talking about myself. I don't do it very often. So hopefully I've done an okay job here, Paul. You've done great, but unfortunately you have another 20 minutes of talking about yourself. Oh. So buckle up. 
Um, so I love the start um, that you mentioned about how you got, you know, kind of started or what your motivation yeah. was in the public sector. So you got your start there. You stayed there for the majority of your career. But tell us about your experience um, in the public sector, especially with the Cuyahoga uh, County office. What what did a day in communications for the county look like? Well, well, you know, before I was the director of communications, I was doing policy work and it was a really exciting time to be working at the county government. So this is about 10 years ago when I moved up to Cleveland, brand new form of government, right? We had a lot of corruption up here and, and there was an opportunity and momentum and political will to really do things differently. So I hopped into to county government doing regional collaboration work. It was this idea of getting our 59 communities to work together, which is really staggering when you think we have 59 different jurisdictions in our, in our relatively small county. And, and that was great and I loved it. Um, but you know, you gotta watch out when you do a job well, they might ask you to, to do more. And so lo and behold, I, I was tapped to be the communications director. And frankly, I hadn't done, done that work, Paul. I had done um, you know, policy, government relations. And while media relations was similar, it was definitely a cousin of the work that I had done. So a lot of the same skills, but forced to adapt them in a new and, and different way. And, and, and I did that job for a few years, but I gotta say it was one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. You know, the, uh, describing a day, you asked me to describe a day. It was like triage. Oh. Every day was um, a series of, of urgent, um, sometimes crises, right? Urgent things to get done. And you just had to work your, work your way down. Whatever was most urgent happened first, and then you, you tried to get through your day. It was the fastest my day would ever go by. That's for sure. I would blink, and it would be 5 p.m. I'm Italian, so I like to eat, and it was the first time in my life that I, I would miss lunch accidentally. I never understood how people could do that. It happened all the time when I was the communications <laughs> director. Um, but honestly, it, it, it was an exciting time. It was it was an incredible learning experience knowing what it's like to be on that side of media requests and speaking on behalf of an elected official, especially one who at the time was running for higher office. And um, at the end of it, I, I was ready for a break from government. And, and that's what kind of led me uh, to my role today. But yeah, an amazing time. Honestly, my heart is in public service and, and the government sector. I'll end up there some, someday. I'll be back there someday. Man, good for you. I feel like not too many people say that nowadays. My heart is in public, sir. I mean, it doesn't look, and this leads to our next question, it doesn't look too much fun. So what is, what is a common or um, the biggest misconception the public has about how either where you worked operates or just government in general operates? What's a big misconception? Yeah, I love this question. I'm so glad you asked it. I, I could probably answer in a lot of different ways, but the one that pops to mind for me is the real breath of demand um, on a public servant. I think that is often sort of forgotten or not realized by most folks. Um, it is truly mile wide, inch deep type of work in that you, you really, it's hard to understand the number and types of things that are constantly coming before folks that work in, in, in government and the way I would always think about it as because of those demands, there was little time for thinking, it was just doing. So very few um, you know, opportunities to sit back and think about things strategically or innovatively. 
it really is about, you know, getting things done, you know, whatever is the top of that triage list, working your way through it. Um, so that, that's honestly why I love being a non, nonprofit now today and why I value things like nonprofit partners, advocates, dare I say it, lobbyists even, you know, these folks that can take the time to think, to strategize, pull tables of people together, pull coalitions together, convene people. Um, I, I really value that type of partnership with government because those are the folks that can bring some of that strategy and innovation in when, when public servants just don't have the time and capacity to do it. I think that's where the frustration really, well, besides the last couple of years, the frustration really lies with the public um, you know, servants or elected officials is because a lot of the times they're running on a campaign, they're promising a lot of things, they're saying a lot of things, and then day one, they're like, oh crap, I don't know if we're going to be able to even get to bullet three that I said we were going to do, right? You know, and so I think that's where, and it's not because they don't want to, it's not because they're not trying, it's because they have a million fires to put out, and then even to get, you know, some bipartisan, whatever you're trying to get passed or whether it's, you know, uh, legislation or new, whatever it is, it's just much harder. It takes much longer. And so I think that's probably for me, I'm trying, now I'm like answering the own question, right? Like that's where people get frustrated, right? It's just, it's, it's this constant, we're hearing this. We don't necessarily see it yet. It may take much longer. And, and then I think there's a whole nother aspect of then you have to run for office again. You have to get reelected. Right. So then it's right. like, okay, well, the work has to be paused permanently. Cause now if I don't get it, we can't even come back to the work. So it's like, it's this, it's a vicious cycle. Um, yeah. You've been with Enterprise Community Partners for six years now. I think you touched on it briefly a little bit earlier, but how did you land that role? Um, how did you learn about them and kind of what attracted you to them? Yeah. So it's hard to believe I've been there for six years. I'm the state and local policy director at Enterprise Community Partners. Um, well, you know, besides what I already said about needing a break from, from the government sector, I was just really thrilled to get back to my policy roots. So I had worked in the state house down in Columbus. I had worked at the Department of Development as a legislative liaison, which is really representing the interests of economic development, community development at the state house. That's what I love. That's what I love to do. I like to be a wonk. I like to get into the ideas. I like to figure out how to implement them and make them real. Um, communications was fun, but at the end of it, I was ready to move on, get back to policy and, and enterprise just came around at the, the perfect opportunity. I'm the first state and local policy director that our office has had. So it was really an opportunity to hold together a mission um, around housing and a policy platform that hadn't really been seen in our community up until that point. And you know, I had been a, a generalist, as you can say, I had been a generalist in, in government. I had done a lot of different things, touched on housing a bit, community development, economic development, regional collaboration, et cetera. But it was exciting to, to kind of dive into the specifics. I, I'm still far from an expert in housing. I'll be the first to say that. Um, I have colleagues who have done this for 30 plus years. They're incredible. I'm learning still, but but I know a lot more than I did six years ago. And it's it's just been a real thrill to kind of put together a housing policy, something that is so important to our city, to our state, to our country, frankly, and, and try to push it to make it real. So let's drill into the mission behind Enterprise. Tell us about the work your organization does and what you're uh, involved in on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So this is when I would say my really corny joke about how we're not the rent-a-car company. We're not Enterprise the rent-a-car company. I say that all the time. It kills every time, I swear. Um, <laughs> no, Enterprise Community Partners, we're a national housing community development nonprofit. We've actually been around for about 40 years. We work all across the country. We have 13 market offices, including here in Ohio. We operate out of Cleveland. So there's an Enterprise Ohio office, but I also have peers all across the country. Um, you know, our, our mission, our whole sort of reason for being around is the idea that housing and building strong communities is a stepping stone for opportunity. If you can get that foundation right, um, we believe that folks can succeed. We do it by increasing housing supply. We try to build what we call resiliency, upward mobility for folks. And we try to honestly address and advance racial equity. And that's kind of our core mission. We, we work on that though in a lot of different ways, which is, is sort of what I love most about enterprise, but it's what's hardest to explain about us. We um, aren't necessarily the ones doing the work on the ground, but we're supporting the folks doing the work on the ground. We're, we're bringing in some of that strategy, that coalition building, that convening that we know communities really need. Um, and it looks different community to community. So what we do here in Ohio is not what our folks are doing in New Orleans or New York or San Francisco. It, it really is tailored to what our community needs and what is missing, um, what gaps that we can help fill in the community. So in Ohio, um, you know, for instance, we, we run a whole slew of programs. We support other organizations and bring them together to do things like pre-tax preparation services. It's called the Cuyahoga EITC Coalition. We run and facilitate um, what's called the Housing First Initiative, which is our community's effort to end long-term homelessness. Um, I run a program, and I've been doing this for about two to three years, on lead poisoning prevention called the Lead Safe Cleveland Coalition. Um, so these are all the types of- I didn't realize how big of an issue lead was in Cleveland. I had no oh, idea. Oh gosh. When yeah. I went through your, I was going through your Twitter, like my goodness, I had no idea. It's, it's absolutely staggering. I mean, I could probably talk to you off the rest of today. I mean, this Let's Save Cleveland Coalition came together because the issue is so pervasive. And what's most scary about it, to me at least, is that it can affect anyone and it's essentially permanent. So once a child's been exposed to lead hazards, the effects of it are irreversible for the rest of their lives. And if it affects anything from, you know, sort of their, their, physical, um, their physical health to their behavioral health, you know, their intellectual capacity, their ability to read, I mean, the, the numbers are staggering. If, if a child is exposed to lead and lead poison, the, the percentage of likelihood that they will be more likely to interact with the criminal justice system, they will fall behind in school and not be ready for things like kindergarten. I mean, it's staggering, it's staggering. And, and a lot of people think like Flint, Michigan when they think about lead, right? Well, guess what? It's worse here in Cleveland and it's not in our water, it's in our homes, it's in our housing. Um, so this is, a, that's a perfect example of the type of systemic problem that enterprise sees and thinks, okay, what, what can we bring to bear here? How can we help the community have a more systemic response to this huge problem? So this past year obviously has been challenging um, for everybody throughout the country, but housing has been at the forefront of a lot of Americans' issues. Mm. What has the past year looked like for your organization and the people you serve? I couldn't agree more. Housing has felt more important than ever. 
we're, we're all staying at home, stuck at home, right? And a lot of children, families are in homes that are not safe or decent, affordable or unstable, right? They might be living paycheck to paycheck or they lost that job and they're at risk of losing their home. So housing has really never felt as important as it did during the pandemic. And I think what the pandemic did was just uncover the foundational importance of having housing security. In a place like Ohio, we, we often talk about how affordable it is compared to the coasts, for instance. And that's true, but we still have some pretty dire housing insecurity. And that's because we do have housing costs increasing at a pretty rapid pace. Um, but, but more than that, more than how it's increasing maybe on the coast is that our incomes aren't keeping pace. So we have incredibly low incomes. Folks aren't able to pay their, their rent, their mortgage. And then you add in a pretty uniquely kind of legacy city, Rust Belt City issue, which is our quality. Our housing quality continues to deteriorate. We have an older housing stock and we're not doing a great job of, of maintaining it, fixing it up. Um, so you take all those factors together and, and the housing insecurity situation looks just as dire here in Ohio as it is in honestly other, other parts of, of the country. Um, so this past year, we, we really felt that. Um, the, the state for the very first time had to craft some housing uh, assistance programs, some emergency assistance programs for folks that we honestly hadn't done before. We had been advocating for it for, for years, you know, I have been advocating for, for certain things for years, but it really wasn't until the urgency of the pandemic came around, uncovered some of these insecurities and, and how vulnerable our whole kind of community and economy was if, if our housing sort of fell apart, if our housing structure fell apart, you know, that was the impetus to get a lot done. So this past year, um, a lot of the things, the longer term things that I hope to get done were put on the back burner and we focused on things like getting emergency rental assistance programs put together. We did that at the state level and at the city and county level. Again, first time these sorts of programs have been put together. We looked at things like um, the eviction moratorium, but making sure we were pairing that with things like rental assistance. So, so landlords could pay their mortgages, right? And they could get their bills taken care of. Um, and, and sort of all the safety net services folks would need in order to really just stabilize our community. So if you're a homeless individual and you're planning on going to the shelter, well, you can't have groups of folks in a shelter. We know that that is a super spreader, right? So, so how do you do things like um, non-congregate shelter, which is you know taking folks, individuals dealing with homelessness and getting them into maybe hotel settings or other settings so they can't make, um, you know, they can't risk one another with, with COVID. So that's the type of stuff that we sort of had to focus on during the pandemic, put pause in a lot of our longer term work, make sure it was, it was you know, continuing, but also taking care of these really emergent and, and frankly urgent needs. Um, so you touched on a lot there. I wanted to follow up on the equity um, and the, the, I would say the equity and just kind of wealth gap in the housing market, but we've, this, this past year has been insane. And yeah. with the lack of supply, which is somewhat crazy to me, but with the lack of supply and then just the massive increase in demand, the housing market has never been hotter. It's insane. Um, but like you mentioned, it's only highlighted or uncovered, as you said, the wealth and equity gap in the, out, the actual Ohio housing offering. So mm -hmm. in your opinion, 
you know, what does the future of housing look like or should look like? Yeah, you know, that lack of supply is indicative too of our, our stock. Our stock is such a poor quality um, in so many parts of the city. We have this incredibly limited stock that that's really of interest to folks. That's really of interest to those looking to buy homes. You know, for me, I really think the big challenge ahead of us is equitable development. Uh, so if you're just looking at the city of Cleveland, we have pockets that are incredibly hot markets. Um, you know, just like you described, we, we, you, you can't even keep a house on the market, right? And in those neighborhoods, you have folks feeling displacement pressure. They are seeing their property taxes increase. They're not able to keep up with those bills. Maybe they're not even able to afford sort of the, the maintenance, the deferred maintenance on their homes that they've been setting aside for years. So they're looking around them, seeing their market, their neighborhood catapult, and they're not able to keep pace. But then there's a, an, another story that's very real, pervasive, and frankly, it's happening in the majority of our Cleveland neighborhoods, often our brown and black communities, our east side communities. And that is that our markets are completely stagnant, that we cannot build essentially a housing market because the, the prices of these homes are so depressed because of historical disinvestment, segregation. You know, we could go on, we could have a whole podcast about, about why some of our neighborhoods are sort of dealing with these stagnated markets the way that they are. But, but that, sort of, that issue is a lot different and it's just as pressing and we have to address it in order to have success as a city. So for those parts of the community, we need to figure out how to surge in um, value by either helping folks repair their home um, we need to figure out how to do infill housing, so new housing, to bring up the, the property values in the market, really kind of create a market in those neighborhoods. And, and that is what I, I'm thinking about when I think about equitable development. It's kind of a whole suite of tools. And right now we have, unfortunately, a lot of one-size-fits-all tools. And what we need are more sort of strategic tools to help both those hotter market pockets, but then also those neighborhoods that need just incredible amounts of investment to get their housing markets kind of kicked off. Yep. Who do you work with to get that investment started? You know, like who do you, who are you going to? Is it government? Is it private equity? Is it venture capital? I mean, who are you talking to? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a little bit of all of the above, right? It's got to be a public private partnership to succeed. In my opinion, I do think government can and should lead the way on this. There are other communities that have put some pretty incredible tools in place for home repair, for the access to capital, both for first mortgages, but um, for repairing homes. Um, government can, can come in and provide some of those tools, um, maybe create the baseline, right? Create the tools or the vehicles, and then you bring in private sector capital, like the banks, for instance, right? Um, but, but yeah, I really think that our government can and should be leading the way. We've seen it happen in other communities. You know, I, I think we'll get to it here in a little bit, but Enterprise would propose a number of, of tools and solutions that the city could relatively modestly invest in and, and really be the jumpstart to bring in some of that private sector capital. Yeah, perfect transition. So um, you recently had a fantastic Twitter thread, um, a, a plus, you know, I think there was... <laughs> 14 of them in the thread, which is awesome. It's a long um, one, yeah. <laughs> so the thread was all about uh, your thoughts on how Ohio should plan to spend 
uh, President Biden's proposed American Rescue Plan, which is, is funny that it's like, look, I, I know people are going to disagree on how, and, and we'll get to the actual question, but people are always going to disagree on how we should actually do it. But this has been something that everyone, Republicans, Democrats, independents, has talked about that we needed to do since I was five. You know, our roads have been bad for a long time. Our bridges have been bad. Our infrastructure has been bad. So I'm just a little frustrated with the amount of pushback that we're getting right now, which is not what the question is. But <laughs> Let's talk through some of the ideas in that thread. And if you wanted to highlight, you know, three, four or five of them that you think could get off the ground quicker than others, or you think have, you know, more success rate early on to, to get started. Yeah, I, you're right. I mean, this is something that I think we've been kind of waiting for, hoping for, for a long time. It is truly transformational investment. So the American Rescue Plan is the third and latest COVID relief package. It includes a lot of funding, you know, it's in the trillions of dollars, right, in, in, in total. But one of the sort of streams of funding is directly to state and local governments. And it is essentially a pot of money for them to use to assist households in the community, perhaps fill budget gaps, um, et cetera. But it, it, it's sort of theirs and up to their discretion on how to use it within parameters set by the federal government. Um, the state of Ohio is receiving $5.6 billion, billion, right, a B, billions. The Cuyahoga County is receiving $240 million, and the city of Cleveland is receiving $541 million. Um, to put that into perspective, that is close to what our annual budget looks like in the city. Wow. So this is a whole nether insurgent uh, of sort of money of, of investment of, of potential, you know, huge change in our community, um, not just to respond to COVID, which you know we absolutely need to do, but it's this real opportunity to kind of build a bridge, in my opinion, towards more longer-term recovery as a community. So I put together some ideas. I threw them on Twitter. Thanks for your your Twitter support, Paul. Um, I you know what I was thinking when I threw out these ideas is we really have a rare opportunity here. And we should be thinking about this money, not just as a way to backfill holes in the budget. Um, we should be thinking about it as ways to make huge down payments on systemic problems and as a way to innovate. Um, you know, we have some solutions ready to go for these huge problems like lead poisoning prevention. Um, I talked about the Lead Safe Cleveland Coalition. We've built a first of its kind fund to actually provide financial assistance to, to property owners, to landlords, to fix up their home and make them safe. So you can no longer, um, in the city of Cleveland, risk your tenants' health and safety with these lead hazards. We can, through this um, tool we call the Lead Safe Home Fund, give you loans, grants, and incentives to fix up your property. We know that when you do that, when you create a lead safe home proactively before a child's irreparably poisoned, we can essentially eradicate, we can end lead poisoning in our community. So there is a solution, there is a mechanism. What we need is to make sure we have enough resources to continue to provide those loans, grants and incentives. So how about uh, city of Cleveland, take a big chunk of that American Rescue Plan dollars and basically end lead poisoning in our community. And 
by the way, at the same time, invest in our homes. So I was talking about how desperately we need to do home repair. Well, making land safe homes, you know, I hate to break to you, that's doing home repair work. So take a big chunk of those American Rescue Plan dollars and essentially make a down payment towards ending lead poisoning in our community. That's kind of one of the, the systemic ideas. I think the other way we need to be thinking about it is, is innovation. So we are often barely making ends meet in government, right? We gotta do these core functions and we never have enough money for it. Well, if you get a surge of dollars like this, isn't this an opportunity to try new solutions, right? Like, we as a community are constantly coming up with new ideas, best practices, ways to address problems, but we can't even get the smallest morsel of dollars to see if it would work, right? So let's innovate. We have, for instance, um, a pilot program ready to go to help those individuals who are justice involved. So if you're a reentering citizen, we know how difficult it is, honestly, to find a job, but it's really hard to find housing. So many folks just close the door in your face if you have any sort of criminal background. So can we take a relatively small amount of money from the American Rescue Plan and pilot new solutions so we're not just taking folks reentering um, society and saying, oh, well, good luck, you're on your own, but we create a pipeline and prove that it can work to keep those folks housed. I love the innovation concept because I don't remember the podcast I was listening to, but it was exactly about that topic of the fact that government is not allowed to be innovative. They're right. Supposed to be innovative. They're supposed to do what they have. Like, like you said, we have this amount of dollars and this is what we can do. And that's it. You know, whereas I, it was, it was basically comparing the tech world who, I mean, innovate all you want, waste millions of dollars. That's okay. That's what we expect you to do. If this idea didn't work, well then raise another hundred million dollars and another round and try another idea. Like we pour money into tech companies and new uh, innovative companies in hopes that their idea will work. And in government, it couldn't be more opposite. And I think I, I love that idea. I mean, it makes me a little nervous for the backlash <laughs> from the, from your constituents from Cleveland and from Cuyahoga County, just because, man, I can't imagine how angry they would be if you tried something and didn't work, but you can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't get mad that the government doesn't innovate and then get mad when they attempt and maybe it didn't work out. So that's, uh, yeah, I, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you what, everybody and their brother is coming up with a laundry list of ideas for the American Rescue Plan. So our community is kind of bringing all of its brilliance, its experience to bear. It's a tough spot that the city, the county, and the state are going to be in. They're going to have to come up with plans for this money. It's going to be incredibly scrutinized. I'll certainly be watching it to see how it plays out. But it, it's a huge opportunity. I, you know, I, I've been advocating for things for years at Enterprise, like a local housing trust fund. Almost every other big city and community has something like that. It's essentially a local fund to support equitable development, affordable housing. You know, we can't just imagine it into an existence. We have to smartly resource it into an existence. Um, so isn't the American Rescue Plan a great opportunity to seed something like that? Like let's seed a, a local trust fund. Let's make it happen into the future. And, and I really feel like if we, we miss that window, we will, you know, really, be in the, in the long run kind of behind, even more behind than Cleveland sometimes feels 
um, of other cities. So, so yeah, I'll be watching with bated breath. There's just such huge opportunity here. And, and I really hope that we scoop it up and do some transformational, innovational stuff. Yeah, it does feel like a bit of an inflection point and an opportunity where cities, let's say it all goes through and everything gets approved and all that stuff. The cities that take advantage and truly do innovate in 10, maybe even five years, but in 10 years for sure, you're going to look back and, and be able to see, wow, like what an insane idea, whether it's electric vehicle charging stations and whatever it is that they decide to do, you're going to be able to look back and say, man, that didn't go nearly as well. We shouldn't have done that. Or wow, thank God we did innovate instead of filling budget gaps. You know what I mean? Like, That's right. That's right. But I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, just to make sure I'm ending on a, a positive note here, this isn't our only bite at the apple. There is another hopefully forthcoming federal package. It's the infrastructure package. So we have this COVID relief bill that is a huge amount of money, but then hopefully soon on the horizon, later in 2021, we're going to have an infrastructure package passed by Congress and, and President Biden. And, and that also has a huge huge opportunity for transformational impact. And that, that really gets to some of our, our core functions, like our roads, bridges, you know, mobility, but, but also it can do a lot of great housing stuff. Um, so, so we'll have another bite at the apple. You know, maybe we build that muscle at the American Rescue Plan. We, we get good at creating some of these big and small programs alike. And then when the infrastructure package comes, we'll, we'll be ready to go and, and totally uh, transform our city. Yep. Um, Emily, this was great. Uh, we will get you out of here on two easy questions, but we would <laughs> like to give our guests um, a chance to list their favorite places to live around town and around the state. And you have a unique perspective because you've lived a couple of different places. So you can pick your favorite place in Athens, uh, Dayton or Cleveland or anywhere really. Um, but favorite, yeah. uh, favorite spot to eat, whether it be takeout or sit down or uh, yeah, wherever, Athens or Cleveland, what do you got? Yeah, well, in Athens, it's easy. It's a slam dunk. It's got to be Bagel Street Deli. Yeah. I um, I implore everybody if they go to Athens to get a bagel sandwich at Bagel Street Deli. It's simple, but no one does it quite like Bagel Street. Yep. Uh, I daydream about that place, honestly. Um, and here in Cleveland, you know, I, I live on the near west side. Um, I'm, I'm a total Cleveland stand, so I got to pick a local place. And I'm Sicilian, right? I'm Italian, so I I gotta pick Italian food. Right down the street for me is Bruno's. Um, just the, the best little, tiniest little uh, Italian restaurant. So everybody should check it out. Bagel Street Deli and Bruno's, got it. Um, okay, last one. Where can everybody find you, connect with you? LinkedIn, Twitter, website, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's dangerous, but I'm gonna tell folks to find me on Twitter, right? Uh, you'll never, you'll never know if I'm feeling uh, in the mood for hot takes. Maybe you'll catch some on Twitter. But yeah, I'm uh, E. Lungard. So yeah, E-L-U-N-D-G-A-R-D. -E you can find me there. Um, usually, you know, I keep it positive, but every once in a while, you might, you might catch my hot take. <laughs> Love it. All right, well, we'll be on the lookout for, uh, for some hot takes here in the next couple of months. Emily, thank you again for coming on. Appreciate it. We'll talk with you soon. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.